Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. A new artificial intelligence tool is causing concern and excitement in the classroom, depending on who you ask. The tool that we're talking about today is ChatGPT. You may have heard about it, and if you haven't, well, you definitely will now because we have two people thinking and writing about AI's role in the academic world and how ChatGPT comes in. Alfred Guy is the RWB Lewis Director of Writing and Tutoring at Yale University, and we have Jeff Young, who is the editor at EdSurge, an education journalism initiative. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Do you have a question about ChatGPT? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jeff, I want to start out with you. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly is ChatGPT and how does it work? Yeah, so ChatGPT is an artificially intelligent chatbot. And in, in a way, you can think of it like a search engine that you can have a conversation with. Um, unlike a typical, like a Google search, or, or you can put basically like instead of it having to, uh, it have pointing to web pages, what it does is it can actually summarize information that it's drawn from the internet. Um, so you can ask it, you know, sort of natural language questions, and it's going to go get you an answer. Um, and in a way that feels feels a lot different, and even you know have follow up questions with it as you as you seek this answer. What kind of uh, questions have you asked? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because I did, I will admit, I, I asked it to, you know, um, give me the explain quantum physics. And one of the things that it, it kind of drew something like a Wikipedia entry answer. But one of the things that that's different about ChatGPT is you can then have it kind of give it to you in a genre or reform the language in some other you know, popular way. And so I then asked it to give me that same answer in the form of a, of a story. Um, and so it, it made it into a little, um, short, I think I asked it to do it as a children's story. So it would explain it to me simply. And it came up with this yarn with a lead character named Max and who was going into a cave and come out, coming out with a lantern that acted like a wave and a particle. I love your children's story um, example because that's how I like people to explain things to me, and that was perfect. Um, and because it's a <laughs> it's a language based program, right? So, and there's a lot of concerns in terms of how students can use it. Uh, is ChatGPT able to generate more than just essays? Can it also answer exam questions or multiple choice questions? Well, exactly. Students have figured out very quickly that, in fact, the kinds of um, answers it can give are, you know, the kinds of answers that teachers and professors kind of are looking for, for, you know, the kind of questions they get on for essays or homework questions. So it, it, because it has access, you know, it has, it, it has access to internet, um, although it's not like live access at the moment, but it, it's drawn on endless information from the internet. It can do things like summarize a popular 
book or even sort of give you, um, you know, and then do it in a form of like a five paragraph essay if you ask it to you. And the app came out just a couple months ago, I believe in November, and it's already causing so much conversation. I mean, the fact that we're talking about today, uh, do you have an idea how it's impacting academia and changing conversations around academic integrity? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've covered colleges and, and higher ed for a long time, and I, I've never seen emergency meetings of academic integrity committees, but that's, that is what's happening now. Um, you have, for one thing, this is the fastest growing app of all time uh, by some measures. So it just came out in November, um, ChatGPT, and it, it, you know, in three months, it got to 100 million active users. It's faster than, you know, things like Twitter and other um, apps that now we all use. It's grow. This is growing faster. It's emerging very quickly. And students are really learning about it quickly. Um, I'm seeing a lot of evidence that TikTok is a big place where students are learning that it exists and how to use it. And so um, this is, you know, this is something that, um, and teachers and instructors are are figuring out quickly, you know, that their students are, are knowing about it and, and using it. And so there's a question of, you know, what this means when the, the typical way that colleges tell whether a student has, has read a book or learned something that's been said in a lecture is that the, the student can then summarize it or synthesize it and, and put back, you know, a, a short answer in text that that explains it, but that's exactly what ChatGPT does. And so if a student um, asks the chatbot, turns that bot written text in, um, is, you know, that's, are you grading a student or a chatbot at that point? I can't really imagine being in that position. And I know our conversation today is mostly focused on on its impact on higher education. And I know it's a little early days, but it's spreading so fast. Do you know at this point, could it be used as a tool to improve your students' work or students in other disciplines? And I ask because I have been seeing a lot of teachers mentioning from maybe like the primary school education level or you know middle school, high school, they're seeing it, it can be a tool to be used to improve writing or to do critical thinking. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I'm not um, a, a teacher now. I cover teaching, but I do hear from a lot of professors that they're, you know, even though they're concerned that this could be used to cheat, they're also, you know, some excitement about thinking about what, it, you know, if, if this is the tool that's out there, um, how could it be used in a positive way in teaching? Um, one of the examples I heard from a professor was that they could <clears throat> have the chatbot write, the student could have the chatbot write a, a, a draft, and then the student could grade the chatbot. And one of the things that's important to note about ChatGPT in its current form is that it, it, it's it's known to have inaccuracies in some of the information, um, probably because the internet has some inaccurate information on it. And so if the student is put in a position of like checking the chatbot's work, then they would need to know what the what the true information is. And so that could be a way to um, have the student show they know something, but it's a very different type of assignment than writing that text themselves. Yeah, I mean, if I can just jump in, I would say that's a, it's very important. I would, in some ways, if ChatGPT gets us to have students do that work, well, it's work we needed to be doing for the last 20 years, getting people to double check what they read on the internet because there's the chance that it's wrong. But it is very different, Jeff, as you say, from using writing to know if students have mastered background knowledge to using writing as a way to measure 
if they've learned something that everyone else already knows. And ChatGPT is, I think, always going to be better than the average student at showing what everybody else already knows. Uh, so in the long run, Catherine, my, this is Alfie speaking, by the way, uh, I would say unless teachers start asking students to write about things that are less certain uh, and or to write against the prevailing wisdom on things, it's going to be very hard to use ChatGPT to improve the writing itself. Um, because it's 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 very good at summary. It's very good at synthesizing many 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 sources. You know, you, you give students a project to read about something. They might read, you know, three to four things uh, if it's a short paper, and eight to ten or twenty things if it's a, a three week project. But ChatGPT can read a thousand things. That, you know, it doesn't really read, but it can summarize from a thousand sources at once. So it's always going to stay ahead of. Um, assignments for summarizing and giving an overview. Well, thanks for jumping in, Alfred. I definitely want to go more in depth with you on that particular area. And you talking about it being able to read or, you know, quote, quote, read so much. I wish I can have that um, skill for my very long to be read list. So thanks for thanks for pointing that out that I need to get on that. But I wanted to talk to you, too. If um, if you can just share with us, how did you get interested in AI as a writing professor? So uh, where I work at Yale and where the, I work in the teaching and learning center, even though I direct the writing program, and we get questions from faculty about various things all the time. We have a, an open email address. And about December 4th, we started getting questions about ChatGPT. It came out on November 30th. And uh, so some of us tried working with it and saw pretty quickly that the beginnings of its answers to things were very competent uh, and often correct. The longer uh, you have it right, the more it, it sort of makes mistakes and repeats itself. But um, professors' concerns that take-home exams that have large amount of synthesis were going to be compromised or made more complicated by this tool seemed relevant very, very quickly. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what has your experience been using ChatGPT in the classroom? And are are you surprised by what you saw? Did you expect what you saw? What are what are some of the things that you're seeing? I'm I'm very surprised. I had seen some AI writing before November 30th, and it was, it, but even the sentences weren't very good. Never mind that it often made no sense. Um, like an AI text that I read this summer. Every other sentence would feel like it was written by a different writer. They really weren't very good. And I'm very impressed at how good ChatGPT is at giving an overview and giving the background and sounding like someone who knows something about the thing you asked it. And uh, I'm not that worried yet as a teacher because I ask students quirkier questions, but um, it, I was really surprised and impressed by how good it is. And I've probably run 50 or 60 different kinds of questions through it in addition to reading a lot of articles where other people have done it. Uh, and it's a very powerful tool for generating texts. And can you give us an example? I know you mentioned before that you use the Netflix series Squid Games as as a way to have your students um, write an or you asked the or you asked ChatGPT to write an essay based on it. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? Uh, sure. So it, as it happens, I have a very small class this semester and um, all the students had to write a question on the board in the first class and eight of the 12 questions were about chat GPT on the very first day of class. So I knew that we were going to have to address it. So I had chat GPT write an essay about Squid Game, which is a text I teach in my class. I teach a class on it's called speculative fiction and film. And 
um, we talked about what it was doing that it's that they thought was part of their job in writing the essay. And then what was it not doing? And essentially my sort of um, inspirational speech was to say, try to do more of the things that it's not doing. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what humans can do that ChatGPT can't do yet. Please push your papers in that direction. Um, I will say students were not as impressed as I was. I don't know if it's because they're more used to relying on what machines can do and trusting them, or if it's just that I have a, a, I'm more shocked by the jump in what it could do before and what it can do now than they are. They weren't, maybe they weren't paying attention, but they thought, yeah, sure. It can, it could help me find directions to a certain area, but I wouldn't expect it to give me life advice kind of. Right. And Obviously, you're you're having these conversations through examples and through your teachings. But do you have any? Um, I don't want to say advice, but maybe guidelines for other professors on how do you start that conversation with students um, about using ChatGPT in the classroom? Uh, well, I would say that for I think the long in the long run that conversation has to break down two different things we use writing for, and Jeff mentioned both of them. But I would just put them in almost different categories. One is we use writing to measure whether people have learned something. And we use writing to help people learn something. Writing is a technology that allows you to synthesize your thinking, to take things you're starting to feel sure of or you're uncertain of and write your way towards a deeper and deeper understanding. And I talk to my students about how I want them not to give that up, that they're in college, because presumably because they want to become more sophisticated thinkers. They want to become people who can solve important problems as they emerge. And if you let a program do that writing, the writing that you're supposed to be doing while you're learning something, you won't learn it. Uh, if you think of writing only as a product you turn in for someone else to measure, I understand why you would be tempted to use chat GPT. But if you remember that we're actually assigning you these tasks because we want you to develop skills, then maybe you'll agree not to give that opportunity away. And Jeff, you know, as an editor, do you see this as a way to improve students' work or, you know, anyone's work really when it deals with language? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, honestly, it definitely makes you, um, you know, all writing teachers tell you, you know, just use cliches. But when you see, I mean, anybody that's used even the autocorrect on your, you know, Google Docs or whatever, if you're going to write the most predictable thing, then then that is, you know, a missed opportunity as a human. And, and I think it does put pressure on <laughs> on humans to um, to work, you know, to, to be be good at, at being human and not just write the most predictable um, thing. And, and, and I think, you know, that that's one thing that it does it does for all of us, but also, I think it also reminds me too that um, that bringing new information um, is is also important, and it it reminds me that there's this like you know um, just kind of a circular system inside the internet, and by being humans and observing the world, like we're bringing something too. So as the reporter function in our newsroom, I'm also encouraging everybody to like get out there and you know talk to more people and. Don't just be in the echo chamber of the internet. And you're in a very interesting position too. You're in a newsroom. So how are you having those conversations with your, with your fellow reporters and editors? Well, I think, you know, we're certainly in, in early days of this. So it hasn't been that many conversations yet. But I, I think that, you know, the um, 
uh, th- there's not there's not a sense that that people are going to be going to chat gpt to do to do our work i don't think but i do i do think that um the questions are what you know what are these things going to mean for publishing and you getting our work out to to folks because as these you know chatbots become built into search engines then it are people going to be pointed to our articles or are we you know how do we make sure we're we're getting to an audience if um the internet around us is changing so that's it's sort of a a, <laughs> a more of a publishing question as well right and i want to bring the conversation back to the classroom a little bit you know alfred earlier you talked about students investment in the class being a good deterrent to using these programs does that mean we might see them used in more introductory classes at the undergraduate level rather than, say, a grad student doing their master's or PhD? I would expect that. I would expect a grad student or a master's student to um, find what ChatGPT can do to be unsatisfactory. So uh, when you ask ChatGPT a question about something that you don't know, it sounds very coherent. And if you know a little bit, you think, well, this is almost right. Um, and then if you ask it about something that you've been researching and studying and thinking a lot about, you realize, oh, it's uh, some to some degree, it's spouting nonsense. It's repeating itself. It's saying only the most superficial things. And so I would expect most people, even I'd say juniors and seniors who, who are majors in a field, to start to be able to realize I can do better than ChatGPT. It, might, it may take me longer. You know, ChatGPT can write a a C minus essay that I could write in uh, 10 minutes instead of uh, taking hours, but I can definitely do better work, make it um, go deeper in my analysis, bring in more surprising connections. I I would expect, you know, there are a lot of lower class assignments, but, but, but what I mean is for younger students, high school and college age students, where, as Jeff said right at the outset, the assignment essentially is show us that you read something. And uh, it would be more acceptable to turn in ChatGPT output for that. Like it, it would, it works better for that. And so, you know, just to just to jump a, a step ahead, I think adding things to your assignments that require that students insert their own experience or reflect on um, what seems problematic or troubling or upsetting about something, and not just what happened in it are sort of the beginnings of of ways to make the questions a little bit harder for any AI writer to do a good job of. You've been hearing from Alfred Guy. He is the RWB Lewis Director of Writing and Tutoring at Yale University, and Jeff Young, who is the editor at EdSearch, an education journalism initiative. They will both be staying with us to talk more about academic integrity when it comes to ChatGPT. That's coming up next. Let us know if you have a question about ChatGPT. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live, and I'm Catherine Shen. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with Alfred Guy. He is the RWB Lewis Director of Writing and Tutoring at Yale University, and Jeff Young, who is the editor at Ed Surge. They're both writing and thinking about artificial intelligence in the classroom, and we will now talk about how universities are reacting to ChatGPT. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jeff, we want to start with you. Um, what are some tools that you know of that universities are using to detect AI use in student work? Is that a challenge? Is it difficult? What are you seeing? Yeah, as, you know, it's it's very early, but there's the I think there's the fundamental question of whether this is going to be as detectable as previous forms of of you know tools that students used to to cheat on or to turn in other people's work as theirs um there have there have long been these plagiarism detection tools that professors have had at their disposal at, at most universities these days that can quickly find out if something is something that's already been written on the internet but because these chat because chat gpt is generative meaning it like made up an answer um it it's not going to be detectable in that in that same way um and so the first question is can a tool be built that can app that can reliably say this was definitely a bot and this was definitely a human and there's even though it's just been a few months um there have been a couple of tools that have come out um one by a princeton um university student called uh, gpt zero um to to help detect and they're the folks that made ChatGPT have talked about that they're working on ways to tools that will be able to to tell as well um whether something is is bot written or not well you're mentioning sort of the bot versus human scenario we've been we've been focusing the conversation more on language like writing essays and and responding to to exam questions but what about the limitations of this? Could this be used for math and sciences as well as writing? Yeah, it, it there is um, there is a way in which it can do more than just the language that we've been talking about. In fact, it can answer questions related to coding, um, and it certainly you know can also um, answer things re- regarding to math too. And um, of course, the in in the math. Uh, world, there have been already been tools um, that have come out even before ChatGPT that that would do that. Obviously, there are things like graphing calculators that shook up uh, math instruction. So, in some ways, folks in um, teaching math uh, have had a preview of this un- fundamental challenge we've been talking about of how to how to measure whether the the student knows something or whether they understand how to use a tool to to get the answer. 
And Alfred, I know your focus is more on writing, but I also want to ask, you know, do you see limitations from where you're standing? Well, I, like Jeff, um, uh, well, maybe maybe he doesn't agree with this, actually. Uh, I'm not convinced in the long run that detectors are going to be that useful for AI writers. I just, uh, I think the, the the tools that work well now look for something that's somewhat stable, some stable presence of a text on the internet and compare it. And I'll also say um, a lot of academic integrity centers at uh, universities will only proceed against a student when they have absolute evidence of the original text. And so I don't think a prediction by something like GPT-0 is going to be very strong evidence. My, I, I was just going to say something. I don't really know, Catherine, this is what you're asking me, so feel free to interrupt. But one thing we know about plagiarism before chat GPT-0 is that there are things you can do to reduce the likelihood that students would cheat. Um, so even when, uh, even before you could find all their answers on the internet, if you have students write in class in a low stakes, ungraded way about something, they're less likely to cheat on the graded version of it. If you have students talk about what they're writing with other students, they're less likely to then turn around and turn in something different that they didn't write. And so there are forms of teaching that not only give people a, a heads up, or I should say a head start on what they're going to write and reduce the panic of the blank page when it's time for them to turn in their work, but also make them feel motivated and connected to, and they care about the work more when they've had a chance to do small bits of it and discuss it with other people. So I'm more optimistic about teaching let's at least college students how to get in, the, in a place where they want to do their own work um, than I am in building a tool that will in the long run be able to catch this kind of generative writing. It's, it's, it's awfully good already. You know, out of the box, it's really good. And I just think it's only going to get better at making new texts. Well, and then both of you touched on this earlier, too, that this is really not necessarily a new conversation we're having about AI and tools that students have to, you know, help with their work at, in the classroom. But can you talk about the guidance that Yale has released about AI? Do you see an increasing concern about academic integrity? And is there a need for more conversations, especially since the app came out a couple months ago? Uh, so... I, I think I would boil down our current AI guidance. And by the way, it's definitely a work in progress. We wrote it in January and, you know, there's already been a lot more use of the tool since then. But currently there's sort of three main things. We say there are, you can ask students slightly different questions than you were asking before that rely a little bit less on synthesis and a little bit more on pushing the edge of, of what's known. Um, you can change the assignment itself. So for instance, one of the professors, we had a, a faculty discussion of this a couple of weeks ago, and Justin Farrell in the sociology department talked very movingly about assignments that require collaboration with people, um, that require you to do ethnographic observation or um, to go in sight to the places you're studying and use your experience as part of the learning. And writing up those kinds of things would, would actually be harder to get GPT to help you than it would be to do on your own. And you also feel so much more connected to them. Uh, and then, and, and just to quickly to repeat myself, and finally, just having students do more things where you're watching them learn the material will put them in a place where they're less likely to then turn in someone else's work. So our guidance really focuses currently on how to help students learn and feel connected to their learning 
rather than on how to, you know, and to some degree, not asking them for things that ChatGPT is good at, rather than on scaring them or warning them. Although if you go to our website, you'll see there are some sample warnings about how to tell students not to use ChatGPT in their work. And Jeff, we've been talking a lot about how ChatGPT can help with students' learning. So how do you respond to the argument that it's the students' loss if they use a tool that they're not really actually learning? Well, I guess that, yeah, that that seems to be a a way to sort of re-engage students in the whole process. I mean, I think one of the things that I hear from professors is, you know, very much about getting assignments that you know, that spark the students to be engaged is the kind of answer to chat GPT, not just a, a, a cat and mouse game of, of detecting. And so I think that is where I hear some actual interest and excitement by some professors I talk to you, other than just the wariness of, oh my gosh, here's another um, thing I have to to deal with. Um, and so I think if if that ends up being the the outcome, that could be a very positive thing. If you know, it does spark professors to rethink um, the kinds of questions they're asking and the kinds of assignments um, that are happening um, that might have been already a little outdated, if you will, based on the way um, the industries that, that these students will go into after they graduate operate. I mean, the the internet itself is still relatively new. It's, we all take it for granted, um, but the things are changing so fast that the the questions really are around, like, if you can imagine these tools are going to just get better, um, and then what is that going to mean for the industries people work in, and how do you prepare students for a world where, um, you know, they need to exercise their humanity so they can bring that to a world that's going to have these tools? Well, then both of you mentioned earlier that uh, there are other areas of learning where we've already had a preview when the calculator was invented. And even when Wikipedia was introduced, there was a lot of worry how these tools would impact learning. And Jeff, do you think ChatGPT is going to be you know, just another learning tool that we become more accustomed in the next several years? Yeah, I mean, I think the Wikipedia example is a good one. And I, I was really struck when Wikipedia first emerged, there was um, this, a lot of professors I talked with back then were very much like there was this backlash of like, oh, you don't know where that information came from, is written by some, you know, somebody in their basement, you don't know where that's coming from. And, and think now, like how trusted relatively that Wikipedia is. And I think people have a better sense over time of, of how Wikipedia gets you know, made and and the process that um, yes, anyone can edit it, but somehow the the structure behind it creates something that's pretty neutral and um, you know reliable to a point that you can understand. And that's the trick is that these this tool came out so fast, ChatGPT, and now people are trying to understand like what what can it do. Um, it does feel like. Um, you know, there, there's some sense that I know some professors are already just being like, well, that's just terrible. Um, and the, the students should be checked to make sure they're not using it. But, um, but I feel like this time around, I'm hearing, uh, you know, it's, it's anecdotal so far, but I'm hearing more professors um, kind of come into it being like, okay, well, this seems to be a thing that's going to be there. Um, let's, let's think about what's the, you know, assuming this is in the world, what do we do? Instead of with Wikipedia, where it was almost like a fight it, like this shouldn't be used at all um, attitude, but we'll see. It'll be interesting. 
I'm definitely interested. Well, oh, go for it, Alfred. We got about a minute well, left, but well, one of the, one of the one of the things that um, I'm going to say cracks me up, even though it's not very formal, crack me up about Wikipedia is there are a lot of Yale professors who use write a Wikipedia entry as an assignment, and so I completely remember Jeff when people were so down on it. And then Wikipedia did improve its own internal structures to some degree, but I also think people changed their mindset and they and they turned towards it and thought, well, if I'm concerned that the representation of medieval tapestries is inaccurate, I'm going to have my medieval tapestry students write something on Wikipedia. That was <laughs> um, one one my like I'm I'm neutral to optimistic about what it's going to be like ten years from now uh, for college. I, I might be wrong. I will say student-teacher ratio is a factor here. So making assignments that feel live to students where you give them a chance to pursue questions that they're really interested in and support them while they pursue those rather than just leave them all on their own is labor-intensive. And um, you know, my students, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm the greatest teacher, but my students go further when I engage them on their ideas in progress. And the more students that I have personally, the less of that engagement I can give. And so I have some caution or worry or concern for people who have a lot of students that they're not going, it's not going to be as easy for them to figure out how to make every single person's project a personalized individual project for that student while also giving them feedback along the way. Well, you can come and crack us up at any time. Uh, you've been listening to Alfred Guy, who is the RWB Lewis Director of Writing and Tutoring at Yale University, and Jeff Young, who is the editor at EdSurge. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today and helping us understand ChatGPT better. Thanks. It's been fun. Coming up next, we're having Reed Blackman on. He's the author of Ethical Machines, Your Conscious Guide or Concise Guide to Totally Unbiased, Transparent and Respectful AI. And we'll be talking about the ethics around artificial intelligence. You can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. There's been a lot of talk about ethics when it comes to artificial intelligence, especially with the new program ChatGPT, which has been causing a lot of concerns in the academic world. Here to talk to us about some of those ethical dilemmas is Reed Blackman. He's the author of Ethical Machines, Your Concise Guide to Totally Unbiased, Transparent, and Respectful AI. Thanks, Reed, for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Reed, we've been talking a lot about academic concerns, and I think one of the biggest ethical dilemmas around AI has been making these programs fair and unbiased. And, you know, some may think these are machines. How could they possibly be biased? But can you explain to us and to our listeners on how AI models end up with biases and those real-world impacts? Yeah, sure. So you're right. That is, if if there is the issue of with AI ethics or the risks of AI, then the issue of bias or discrimination is, is the one. There are others, but it is the main one. Um, so look, let's just take a, a sort of standard example and let's stay in the realm of academia. Let's say you're using AI 
to, if you like, read the college applications to see who should get in. So you're trying to predict who are going to be the good students, who's worthy of being admitted or something along those lines. Or maybe you will use it as um, maybe you're a bank and you're using it to figure out of the credit applications, who should you give credit to or who should you grant a mortgage to? Um, so those are those are two kinds of examples. Now, the way that AI works, I think, is is actually I mean, the underpinnings of it are technologically complex, but at a conceptual level, it's quite simple. So AI is just software that learns by example. It's just software that learns by example. So if you're going to train it, if you're going to if you're going to get your AI to learn who the good students are or what the mortgage worthy applications are or who deserves an interview for the job, you're going to give it examples of the kinds of people that you've admitted in the past, given credit to in the past, uh, interviewed in the past and so on. But if all those examples of who you've done that to in the past exhibit some kind of bias or discriminatory attitudes or policies or inherit they've inherited certain kinds of bias or discriminatory policies, then you're going to wind up with biased examples that the AI learns from. So if you've been admitting primarily, let's just say, white men, or you've been giving more credit to white men than to say black men or black women or Asian men or Asian women, it's going to learn that, oh, white people are the kinds of people that we give credit to, that we admit to college, that we give job interviews to. And so it recreates and then scales that kind of bias. That's at least one way that you get biased or discriminatory AI. It's not the only way, but it is the go-to way, if you like. So it sounds like it's the data set that AI learns from that's extremely important. Can you talk to us about how that works and what does training AI models look like? Yeah, so you know, you use the word data. Data, in my, you know, the way to make it really simple is to say that data is a fancy word for examples. And so it's learning by examples, it's learning by data. Um, there's multiple sources. You might get data from all sorts of places and you might, you know, there's, there might be data collectors that are distinct from the data scientists who are actually training these models. Now, what they're doing is they're, they're taking all that data and they are, if you like feeding it to inputting it into what's called a learning algorithm. So, you know, a mathematical tool essentially. And what that mathematical tool, what that algorithm is doing is looking for a pattern in that data. More specifically, it's looking for a mathematical pattern in that data. So to give you a sort of non-controversial case, let's say it's photo recognition software and you've taken a bunch of pictures of your dog Pepe. And you, if you like tell the software, hey, these are all pictures of my dog Pepe. It learns what Pepe looks like, not by looking at the eyes and the ears and the nose of Pepe, but rather by looking at the thousands of mathematical relations among the thousands of pixels contained in those pictures. That's the, if you like, that's the Pepe pattern the, the, in the data. So that's what it's looking for. So when you give it a new picture, if it finds that pattern in that new picture, it'll say, yes, that's Pepe or no, it's not. So when you're giving it resumes, for instance, it's looking for that mathematical pattern, if you like, that, that it seems to indicate worthy of an interview. And then when you give it a new application or a new resume, it'll if it manifests the worthy of a pattern, um, if it manifests that worthy of an interview pattern, then it'll say, yes, give this person an interview. If not, no, don't give them an interview. And on a much related question, you mentioned, you know, photo, photo recognition. And re you wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review about a real world model called Optin, which was a tool used in healthcare. And the bias in this app had some serious ramifications. Can you explain what happened there? 
Yeah, so that was by the the company Optum, um, part of United Health. They created accidentally, I should say, this is not intentional. That's one of the most um, concerning things about this. It's not the problem is not that we've got bias or discriminatory engineers or data scientists. It's that there's loads of ways for bias to creep into the model without people knowing the AI without them knowing. In that particular case, they were creating a piece of AI software that recommended to doctors and nurses who to pay more attention to, who needs care. And it wound up recommending to them to pay more attention to white patients than to sicker black patients. And what explains that is they, with the training data, the examples that they used to train their AI, they used various variables, pieces of data, including who spent money on healthcare. The thought, in some way reasonable, was, well, one really good indicator that people need help is that they spent money on help in the past. And so the problem is, though, what they didn't realize is, well, it's only a good indicator of need of, of, health, of help if you've got the money. If you don't have the money to spend on healthcare, that doesn't mean that you don't need the help. It just means that you lack access to it, to, to healthcare. Since they trained their AI on these examples, and since historically in America, black people have spent less money on healthcare at least in part, maybe completely in part, no, maybe completely because they lack the funds to spend on healthcare. Um, it wound up discriminating against black people, thinking that because they don't spend money on healthcare, they mu- must not need as much help. So it sounds like this has ramifications in a wide variety of areas. We've been focusing a lot about academic integrity, and you just mentioning, you know, the hiring process and jobs, and now in the medical world. How should we address the ethical challenges posed by the use of AI in fields such as law enforcement? Yeah. So one thing I'll say is that there's not, I don't think that there's an industry or a field where AI is not going to come to play. And it's going to be particularly important whenever we have high risk applications, whenever we're talking about, this is at a minimum, we're talking about decisions that have to do with people's access to the basic goods of life, food, uh, security, health, uh, medical care, etc. In the case of law enforcement, there are a variety of use cases. One of the most famous ones is probably facial recognition software. So people are, I think, mostly familiar with this. You can take a camera, you can point it at your audience, and if you've trained your AI to recognize certain kinds of faces, then it might pick out someone, you know, let's say a suspect. And so one application is, let's use this to find the criminal in the crowd, right? Or let's say we've got a camera feed of someone committing a crime, and we throw that into our facial recognition software, we think it's Mike, and now we go arrest Mike. One major problem, though, and this has happened before, it's been reported a number of times, is that there are false positives. So it looks like this is Mike, but in fact, that wasn't Mike, it was John. But police have nonetheless overly trusted the facial recognition software, and then they go arrest Mike put them in jail, et cetera. So there can be some phenomenally disruptive practices when AI goes wrong. And should AI be regulated by governments or industry organizations? And if so, how should this be done? Okay, so that's a very big question. My view is that we absolutely need regulation. There are lots of ways for AI to be used in ways that can really damage individuals and society as a whole. So think, for instance, about the spread of disinformation on social media platforms. That's, in many cases, powered by AI. Um, think about the spread of conspiracy theories. There's there's lots of ways. I mean, there's cases in which 
um, therapy chatbots have told uh, people to kill themselves. Not good. So there are lots of high-risk cases. And so one way to do this, and this is actually the way that the, the European Union is doing it, they're working on what they call the EU AI Act. That's regulations um, pertaining to AI, of course, in the EU. And they they want companies to, first, they're identifying those high-risk cases, which roughly have to do with respecting people's basic rights, uh, ensuring they're not closed off from the basic goods of life. And they have to go through a kind of uh, a rigorous process in order to identify those high-risk cases and to mitigate those risks. So we do need regulations. There's a question about, and it's a tough question, about whether the regulations should be, if you like, across the board or if they should be created on a per-industry level. So, for instance, AI regulations for insurance versus banking uh, versus you know space versus mining versus uh, telecommunications. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a really big, complicated debate. Well, I want to thank you so much for answering those two questions. I just wanted to let everyone know that the last two questions I, I posed to read about law enforcement and regulations were actually generated by ChatGPT. Could you tell? Let us know if you did. Reed, I want to ask, what are your thoughts about those two questions? One was very specific, whereas the other one, and you mentioned it yourself, it was a bigger question. You know, they're perfectly reasonable questions. They're, you know, they're not terribly shocking. <laughs> you know, it's the kinds of questions that I get asked frequently and the kinds of questions that I talk about with people in the AI ethics space. So yeah, they were fine. I don't think you're going to get phenomenally, you know, deeply penetrating, insightful questions um, out of ChatGPT, not yet anyway, but yeah, they're good as far as they go. Well, that's good to know because when I was reading it, I'm not going to lie, I did feel like I was a little stilted. So thanks so much, ChatGPT. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, how the software itself could help educate you know, students and, and people in general. Uh, but what about more education needed for the people building the AI? We have a couple minutes left. I would like you to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, one of the biggest issues with AI ethical risks is that the people who are making this stuff, and it's not just the makers, it's also let's say the senior executives who are approving deployment, approving use of it, they know very little about AI ethical risks. They are not typically trained to spot them. They're not typically trained to mitigate them. And the truth is that it, it can't just be up to them. We're talking about highly complex systems that have all sorts of ethical ramifications. And your average data scientist is not trained in ethics or civil rights or sociology or anything like that. So there's a big learning curve for those technologists who are working on these technologies. But it's also crucial to educate the non-technologists who work with those technologists because you're going to need a variety of people, a diversity of expertise and experience in order to properly uh, in order to provide proper oversight of AI as it gets developed and deployed. So in terms of oversight, do you mean maybe training people to sort of organize a ethics board or so like an ethics committee? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's there's different ways of doing it. I mean, I am a big fan of, of thinking that organizations should have, you can call it an ethics committee or an AI ethical risk committee or a responsible AI committee. It gets called all sorts of things. I think those kinds of things are crucial, at least for those higher risk cases. The objection to them, one objection to them is that they, they um, slow things down. And what we want, so say the companies, is we want innovation, we want to move fast. And it does slow things down in some cases, but if you're only using it for at least those medium to high risk cases, and you're involving a cross-functional team, cross different kinds of expertise, it can do a tremendous amount to mitigate those risks. That said, it's not the board that is going to monitor the impacts. That's sort of not within their purview. 
all AI needs to be monitored because once it's out in the wild, it's it's still learning. Those you know, we said earlier that it's learning by example, it's getting more and more data. But once it's out there in the world, it continues to collect data. And so it continues to learn. And that means it can continue to learn in a way that makes it go off the rails. So you need that constant monitoring by data scientists, but there also needs to be that feedback feedback loop that what the data scientists find in their monitoring is also fed back to something like an ethical risk board. Well, I think we'd be really interested to see how this develops. And thank you so much for your thoughts on that. You've been hearing from Reed Blackman. He's the author of Ethical Machines, your concise guide to totally unbiased, transparent, and respectful AI. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Reed. Anytime. Thanks so much. And just a note for our listeners, our senior producer, Tess Terrible, tried out ChatGPT for this program. She asked it to write some questions about AI ethics, and you can see the full list of questions on our website on ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible, not ChatGPT. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.